When evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. They left the crowd behind, and they took him along in a boat just as he was. There were also other boats with him. A wild storm came up. Waves crashed over the boat. It was about to sink. Jesus was in the back, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and they said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up and ordered the wind to stop. He said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Don't you have any faith at all yet? They were terrified. They asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Last week, we found Jesus in the posture of a teacher sitting in a boat because the crowd was so loud and telling lots of stories. And now Jesus is tired. He's in the boat with his disciples, and he suggests, let's go to the other side of the lake. We're in a series right now in the book of Mark, looking at the questions Jesus asks us in the gospel of Mark. And Jesus gives them this invitation. We find out where Jesus is headed in the next chapter, in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. When they arrive on the other side of the lake, it says they went across the Sea of Galilee to the area of the Gerasenes. Now, the Gerasenes lived east of the Jordan River. The Gerasenes, if you can see the Sea of Galilee there, the Jordan River is to its north and to its south, and on the west side were the Jewish people, and on the east side were the ones that the Jews considered Gentiles, the Gerasenes being one of the communities of Gentiles on the other side of the River Jordan, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus says, let's go to the other side. And I imagine the disciples are thinking to themselves, why, Jesus, why go to the other side? Awkward things can happen when you go to the other side. I grew up mostly in Berrien Springs, Michigan, next to the campus of Andrews University, a Seventh Avenue school there. And about 15 miles up from Berrien Springs, northwest of us on the St. Joseph River, next to Lake Michigan, is the city of Benton Harbor. You can kind of see here on the map, on the east side there's Benton Harbor, and in Benton Harbor, these, this is the, the latest census data, it's a city of about 10,000 residents, about 85% of which are black. In that community, 45% of people in the city of Benton Harbor live in poverty, 45%. The median household income for Benton Harbor is $22,000. Can you imagine uh, your household living on $22,000 for the year? And that's the median income. Now, just across the St. Joseph River, closer to Lake Michigan, if you can see the river there in Lake Michigan, there's the city of St. Joseph. This is iconic, the iconic St. Joe's Lighthouse. For any of you who've been to Andrews University, uh, we love going to St. Joe and walking down the pier and seeing this lighthouse. So St. Joseph is a city of 8,000 people, 84% uh, white, only 7% live in poverty, and the median household income is $62,000 a year. 
um, three times that of the majority of the people who live in Benton Harbor. Alex Kutlatsvitz wrote a book in 1999, and he called it, quote, The Other Side of the River, a story of two towns, a death, and America's dilemma. The Other Side of the River. I am planning to finally listen to this book on Audible over this next month, because even though I grew up there, and I probably have a copy of the book somewhere, I have not yet read it, and I, pl I plan to do it this next month. So when I was in high school, Andrews University students started venturing to Benton Harbor, and they first just started out by going to the community there, going to neighbors, and asking if anyone would pray with them and how they could be helpful. And eventually, a community of people formed there in Benton Harbor, um, and Pioneer Memorial Church at Andrews University started a church plant in Benton Harbor, and the community started to grow, and today, uh, the church planted there is called Harbor of Hope, um, and it's led by Pastor Torres Montgomery, who le leads the church community there, lives in Benton Harbor with his wife and three kids, and is also an associate pastor for Pioneer Memorial Church. So on occasion, Andrews University students and whoever else would want to come would pack up into a, a bus, and we would head to Benton Harbor for outreach. And what this meant for us, it could be children's ministry, there were children's programs that we would have, um, it could be other things, and um, one of the things we would do is pass out flyers. So a whole busload of students, we'd go to Benton Harbor, we'd go to the different neighborhoods and go passing out flyers for various events. This particular Sabbath, it was for an evangelistic series. We were all dressed in our church clothes, most of us still in our church clothes, um, and so the big bus took us to Benton Harbor and dropped us off in various residential areas. And so I was dropped off uh, with another girl and two guys, and the four of us were supposed to walk down the street, hand out the flyers to the evangelistic series, and then finally we were, the bus driver said, look at that corner right there. I want you to stand on that corner and wait until I come back and pick you up. So we're like, okay. So we walked down the street, a lot of... Uh, a lot of badly repaired homes, empty homes, a lot of boarded up houses, going down the street, passing out flyers, and finally we come to the corner where we're supposed to stand. So two of us stand on the one side of the corner, two of us on the other, and we're there, we have our flyers, and sometimes cars would go by, and I noticed there was this one car, two guys in the car, they were sitting really down low, like, I, I don't know if I can, and they were sitting like this. They were just barely looking. The guy was barely looking over the steering wheel. The guy's sitting next to him, and they're kind of looking at us like, okay, what are you guys doing? They slow down. The window is halfway open. I go up to the window, and I say, hey, you should really come to this thing that we're doing. There's going to be food. Um, there's going to be music, and I slip a flyer into their door. They look at me. They do not say a word. They keep going. They come around a couple more times, and we're standing there, and we're looking around, and we're noticing a few stares from people, a few angry looks, and I'm thinking to myself, they just don't like church people. And then uh, one local finally came by. She took our flyer, and she read it, and she looked at us, and she said, are you church people? And we're like, yeah. And she said, you better get off this corner because they think you're hookers. <laughs> Thankfully, it was the first and last time that I have been mistaken for a prostitute. 
We quickly moved off the corner. And I'm not sure when the next time I went to Benton Harbor was. But perhaps that's why we're scared to go to the other side of the lake. We're afraid of going to the other side of the lake, whatever that may look like for you in your setting, in your community. We're afraid to go to the other side because we're afraid of being misunderstood, misjudged, mislabeled. We're afraid of causing more harm than good. We're afraid of looking bad, or we're afraid of getting it all wrong, so we stay on our side of the lake. The Sea of Galilee today, you can see it's developed today. It's a freshwater lake. It's about 12 miles long and seven miles wide. It's low, it's in a basin. It's 700 feet below sea level, but you see the hills around. The top of those hills are about 2,000 feet above sea level. And so because of the cold air coming from the hill, hills down to the warm air over the lake, it's prone to windstorms. Sudden violent windstorms can, can rise up. So the disciples in Jesus, the disciples who may have not have thought it was a good idea to go to the other side in the first place, they get into the boat, they, then they soon find themselves in a wild storm. Waves are crashing over their boat and threatening to sink it, and Jesus is sleeping on a pillow. I had a fun time this week looking up some artwork. This story has been so, uh, so used in creative settings for art, and this is one of them from a French artist, and Jesus is, is uh, sleeping there in the boat. The disciples notice that Jesus is sleeping, and they are in distress, and when I think about people in distress on boats, I cannot help but think right now of the stories I have heard of people distressed on boats in a different sea. In 2021, this last year alone, over 1,400 refugees drowned while crossing the Mediterranean Sea. Many of us have seen images and heard stories. This is the story of Baptiste and Sophie. Baptiste and Sophie originally come from the Cameroon. They left their country because of war and, and all sorts of difficult situations. They made it to Libya, but there in Libya, in North Africa, they found very difficult conditions. Sophie was pregnant, and her husband Baptiste said, quote, Access to healthcare doesn't exist in Libya for black people. We were treated like rubbish. A dog had more value than us. Sophie said, quote, the day of the birth, she's pregnant there in Libya. They don't believe they have access to the healthcare system. The day of the birth, a neighbor came to help me. Can you imagine? A neighbor came to help me, but she was more nervous than me. Her arms were shaking all the time and the birth was very hard. They had a baby, and they named him Bienvenue. Bienvenue, welcome in French. He was born August 6th, and the family took the risk of crossing the central Mediterranean to Italy when he was only seven weeks old. They were rescued from their boat September 20 by Doctors Without Borders. Many refugees don't come through central Mediterranean, um, but come through the eastern Mediterranean from the Middle East. I also learned the story of Doa Al-Zamel, who was 19, when she and her fiance paid 5,000 US dollars to smugglers in Egypt to get them across to Europe. They got on an old fishing boat with hundreds of other people. After four days at sea, their boat sank. 
Bassam, her fiance, found a, a water ring and they treaded together. And uh, while they were treading water, days passed, a Palestinian a man asked Doa to save his nine-month-old granddaughter. So the 19-year-old girl's treading water, her fiance is there, she got the nine-month-old in her arms, and soon after, Doa lost her fiance to the sea. Another woman came to her and asked her to take her 18-month-old daughter. And so here she's with a life ring with a nine-month-old, an 18-month-old, holding, treading water, and on the fourth day, a merchant ship finally finds her with these two two kids. You can read her story in the book, A Hope More Powerful Than the Sea, A Hope More Powerful Than the Sea by Melissa Fleming. Sea Watch is a German nonprofit that rescues people from the Mediterranean. This last Christmas, just this Christmas Eve, they rescued 93 people from a wooden boat that were in distress on the sea. About that Christmas, the leader of the mission wrote, quote, while European politics festively speaks of charity, it leaves thousands to drown in front of its door. Jesus was in the back, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and they said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Teacher, don't you care if we drown? This next picture is Christ in the Storm by Rembrandt. I love this picture because it's so vivid. Um, you see the guy, the, the guy with the red shirt on the far end, he's seasick. Not sure if you could see him all the way down at the end, but all of them are doing different things and they've just woken up Jesus. This painting is lost, by the way. It was stolen in 1990 from a Boston museum where someone just walked in dressed, two guys walked in dressed like the Boston police and said they needed to check something out and they stole 13 or 14 paintings that are still missing today. This is one of them. The Christ in the storm. The story of Jesus asleep in the boat would have reminded Jewish listeners of Mark's gospel of another story. Another story of a prophet asleep in a boat. The story of Jonah. In Jonah chapter one, the Jewish prophet runs away. God tells him to go to the other side. He, got, he tells him, go preach to the people in Nineveh. And Jonah said, uh-uh, there is no way I'm going to those people. And so he gets in a boat. And if you can see the map here, he's supposed to go to Nineveh. He goes to Joppa, gets in a port, and goes to Tarshish across the Mediterranean, as far away as he can get. And it's when he's in that Mediterranean that a wild storm, the same words, a wild storm comes up and all the sailors are afraid but Jonah is sleeping below the deck. And the same moment that happened with Jesus happens here in Jonah 1 verse 6. The captain went down to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call out to your God for help. Maybe he'll pay attention to what's happening to us and then we won't die. In other words, prophet, Man of God, don't you care that we're drowning? Jonah 1 verse 10 says they found that he was running away from the Lord. So that's because he told them, finally, he told them. Then they became terrified, so they asked him, how could you do a thing like that? They're terrified. It literally says they feared a great fear in the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. This is the same unusual wording as in Mark 4, 41, when Jesus finally calms the storm, and the disciples, quote, feared a great fear. Jonah finally rec recommends that they throw him overboard 
And when they do, the sea becomes calm and they worship Yahweh. Following Jesus, friends, does not mean that you will avoid storms. Following Jesus does not mean that you will avoid storms. But guess what? Running the opposite direction does not protect you from storms either. Storms are the reality of life. Storms are the reality, but God can overcome the storm. Whether we're in the boat with Jesus or we say, look, I'm going the wrong direction. Throw me overboard. God can use the storm to show us that God cares, that God cares for us. The disciples asked Jesus, don't you care if we drown? But Jesus' sleep is not one of carelessness like Jonah's. Psalms 4 verse 8 says, in peace I will lie down and sleep. Lord, you alone keep me safe. I need to learn how to sleep like Jesus. Too often, I cannot shut my mind off. Have you ever experienced this? You go to bed and there's that test that you're studying for. You cannot get it out of your mind. Or that there's that email that someone sent you, God bless them, and you haven't responded and you're not sure what that's gonna look like, so it's playing in your mind. Or there's that conversation or there's that sermon that you have to preach at 11.15. Sleep is a gift. I want to learn how to sleep like Jesus. He was able to sleep in the middle of the storm. Jesus embraced the gift. But it's easy for us to interpret other people's sleep as a lack of care, isn't it? It's easy for us to interpret a lack of apparent activity on God's part as a lack of care for us. God Don't you care that my finances are a wreck? God, don't you care that my loved one is sick? God, don't you care that I'm drowning over here, God? Jonah is escaping from the needs of the people in Nineveh, and he is asleep to the cries of his fellow sailors, but not Jesus. Jesus is asleep in the trusting that God has him and God has them. Jonah's story in the parallel here makes me wonder if sometimes God would like to ask us the same question the disciples asked Jesus. Don't you care that people are drowning? Do you have that care? On December 10, 2021, um, Adventist healthcare leaders unveiled a commissioned portrait of Lucy Byard. I had not heard her story until this year. Lucille Spence was born 1877 in Virginia, known by Lucy. Her parents were formerly enslaved people. Lucy got married, she turned 22, she went to New York City, and there at the age of 25, she became one of the first black members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in New York City. There in New York, she got very involved with the church. She played the organ, she taught piano lessons, she ran the church choir at the Jamaica, first Jamaica church in Jamaica, Long Island. She was a baker. She was known for her freshly baked rolls, her pies, her cakes, her nut loaves, and gluten for potluck. I'm looking forward to potluck again one of these days. 
Mm. She also entertained many Adventist leaders in her homes in Queens and Long Island. But in the summer of 1943, in her mid-60s, Lucy developed liver cancer. When her husband, quote, was suddenly deeply impressed to send her to Washington Sanitarium in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Washington Sanitarium was a Seventh-day Adventist hospital. He asked a well-known, respected black pastor to write to the Washington Sanitarium to arrange for her to be admitted, and the hospital agreed. All the finances were worked out. Her church was going to pay the medical bills. Isn't that amazing? A church paying medical bills? They were going to do it. But when they arrived early by train, the tenant said, quote, he, I regretted, regretted to say this, but it is against the law of the state of Maryland to admit colored people into the sanitarium. Before 1943, black people had been admitted to the Washington Sanitarium, and the black pastor who wrote the letter knew that this was the case. They were treated in the basement by off-duty hospital staff. But by 1943, even this subpar policy was no longer done. It, was, it had been reversed. And so she arrived and was not admitted, but was referred over to Freedman's Hospital, which is now Howard University Hospital, where James, her husband, was assured she would be accepted. She died at that hospital 38 days later. Hundreds of people attended her funeral, and get this, 13 pastors participated in her funeral. She was well-known and well-loved, and I was struck by James, her husband's words, quote, my wife had been looking forward with much anticipation to going this, to this particular sanitarium because she felt that she would be among her own people. There would be an understanding among them that she could not expect in an outside hospital. And yet, she was not admitted because of the color of her skin. And what was behind that? What was behind that decision? The director of the sanitarium wrote a letter to the GC treasurer to try to explain what had happened when it all came to light. And he said, quote, were colored patients seen in our buildings, there will immediately rise numerous complicating questions and certain groups of our patients, such as those coming from Virginia and the Carolinas, would be expected to take a degree of offense at their presence. The medical director cared more about social conventions and the prejudices of other patients than he did for Lucy Byard. And so, she was not admitted. And for black Seventh-day Adventists, at this time, there are about 16,000 in the country. At that time, Lucy's rejection at the hospital was the last straw. They organized, and six months after her death, church leaders at the General Conference voted to establish regional conferences. These would be organizations equal and parallel to original church conferences, but led by black administrators to care for work among the black community in the United States, in their area. It's been 75 years, and today 16,000 members have become 318,000 members of regional conferences, and regional conference administrators say they continue, these conferences continue to give voice to the marginalized. 
It was a storm, a major storm, and somehow in the midst of the storm of prejudice, somehow in the midst of the storm of a disciples, a group of disciples not caring enough for their fellow disciples in the midst of the storm, somehow God was able to say, peace be still. God was able to bring good despite the storm, in the midst of the storm. I believe God still has much more work to do in us and through us as a community of faith, as a community in the storm of racism. God wants to say, peace be still. In the storm the disciples found themselves in, when they were going to the other side with people that they were not comfortable with, they're not familiar with, when they were in that storm, Jesus stands up and he says, wind stop. He says, waves, peace be still. So this one comes from my kid's Bible, Bible story book. <laughs> but I love this picture of the just shh, because the words literally here, I, this, this one literal translation, silence, peace is simply silence, hush, hush. And then the literal translation of what we usually call as be still, the literal translation is be muzzled. Be muzzled, I love that. What is the muzzle? <laughs> Can you imagine a muzzling the waves? That's what Jesus says, be muzzled. What is a muzzle? A muzzle is an instrument, a tool to help create a boundary so that an animal does not eat what they're not supposed to eat or they don't bite what they're not supposed to bite. Jesus says, be muzzled. And I've started saying to some of my thoughts, because sometimes the storm comes from within, friends. Sometimes the storm we're facing are our own thoughts, our own insecurities, our own anxieties. And I've started to say to my own thoughts, be muzzled. Sometimes we face situations in our families or in our community or at work. And you can just say a little prayer in Jesus' name, be muzzled. The sea needed to be muzzled. In Jewish thought, the sea was the natural dwelling place for demons and spirits. We see this in Psalms, Job, Isaiah, Daniel, where monsters come from the sea. In John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth from Revelation 21, verse 1, there was no longer any sea. Now, how many of you hope there's sea in the new earth? I do. I do, this verse always disturbed me, but guess what, for someone in exile from the Roman Empire, separated by everyone he loves by a sea, I'm glad that God showed him a vision of no more sea. The sea is not only muzzled, but done away with, because it's only God that can command the sea and expect it to listen and obey. Psalms 89 verse nine says this, you rule over the stormy sea. When its waves rise up, you calm them down. Psalms 107, 28 through 30. I imagine these words were in the minds of Jewish listeners to the Gospel of Mark. It says, then they cried out to the Lord because of their problems, and he brought them out of their troubles. He made the storm as quiet as a whisper. The waves of the ocean calmed down. The people were glad when the ocean became calm. Then he guided them to the harbor they were looking for. Only God can say, peace, be still. Only God can muzzle the sea. Second Maccabees is a book written in Greek around 150 or 120 years before Jesus was born. And in that book, 
The author is writing about the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes, who captured Jerusalem in 167 BC. And it says this, quote, his arrogant pride made him think he had superhuman strength to make ocean waves obey him and to weigh high mountains on a pair of scales, but suddenly he fell flat on the ground and had to be carried off on a stretcher, a clear sign to everyone of God's power. Antiochus Epiphanes thought he could command the waves, yet the waves obeyed Jesus. The waves obeyed Jesus. Mark 4 and verse 40, Jesus said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Don't you have any faith at all yet? I'm glad that Jesus asked the disciples these questions. I don't see them as accusatory. These questions of Jesus give me peace when I am afraid. Why? Because Jesus doesn't kick the disciples out of the boat. He doesn't say, okay guys, back to, back to shore. I'm getting a new crew because you all, he doesn't kick them out. He wants them to think. He wants to think about their emotion. Why are you afraid? What is it that's making you afraid? The word afraid here literally means full of dread. Why are you so full of dread? Why are you anticipating the worst? I see two things here in this story. Number one, number one, uh, they thought they would die. That's a good reason to be afraid, I would say. That scares most of us, but number two, it's a little bit more subtle, but it, it goes back to the question they asked Jesus. Why were they so afraid? Because they weren't 100% sure that Jesus cared about them. They weren't sure that they were loved. They didn't have that assurance that they had God's love 100%, God's care 100%. Fear can protect us, but it can also prevent us from following Jesus, from knowing that we're safe, that we're loved. Knowing that we're safe, that we're loved, gives us, gives us freedom to go with Jesus wherever he calls us, to whatever other side he invites us to go with him to. Don't you have any faith at all yet, Jesus says? I would translate this, don't you trust me yet? Don't you trust me yet? Mark 4, verse 41 says, they were terrified. They asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? And we're left with this lingering question that Mark's building up to where in chapter 8, Jesus is going to ask them, who do you say that I am? But this time, the question is not answered. The disciples ask it, and it lingers in the air. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Do I trust him yet? Who is this Jesus? Why am I so afraid? Do I trust him yet? Do I trust him enough to go with him to the other side? Do I trust him enough to venture into unfamiliar foreign territory? Do I trust him to get me through this storm? Do I trust him yet? I don't know what going over to the other side means for you. It might mean going to over to the other side of a difficult, tense relationship. It could be going over to the other side in your marriage with a family member. It could mean going with Jesus to the other side in a difficult situation at work. It could mean trusting Jesus in the midst of a very challenging storm that you're going through right now. 
It may mean having a conversation with someone you fundamentally disagree with. Perhaps don't start talking about the issue. Just ask them how they are. What's worrying them this week? What do they care about? What are they passionate about? Don't expect smooth sailing. It may be rocky, it may be awkward, but you're safe when you're going with Jesus at Jesus' invitation. It may mean reading a book, watching a movie, listening to a podcast. February is Black History Month. And at the doors today, we have a resource, resource for you, Social Justice and the Word of God. If you'd like an electronic copy, you can go to www.lasierra.church slash anti-racism. I have to tell you, I was prepared to purchase these uh, copies of the study guide from Advent Source. I wasn't sure if they'd get here on time. I called our own conference office, Black Ministries, and said, hey, do you have any copies of these we can purchase from you? And Black Ministry said, we will give them to La Sierra University Church. So thank you, Black Ministries, for helping provide these resources for us. I don't know what crossing to the other side means for you, but I invite you to pray and ask God, where are you inviting me to follow you? Where are you inviting me to go to the other side? You might feel like you're in the eye of a storm right now. God, where are you inviting me to trust you? In the midst of that, Jesus, what are you calling me to do? What am I called to do? What would I do? What will I do? What will I say when I know I'm loved, when I know I'm safe, and when I'm not afraid? Amen.